prophet, preacher, sermon leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell is a pastor? Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life in set-apart ministry. Each week, we sit down to talk about our experiences and challenges as pastors doing small-town ministry during uncertain times. Join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Ethan, how was your week this week? My week was fun. I um, had a lot of time to, you know, just try to get as much things done in the office as I can. I, I haven't gotten quite everything done. I have some calls I need to to make and uh, things I need to do for my secretary. I had a really cool conversation with a theologian on Skype, um, which was a lot of fun. Uh, His name is Dr. Vincent Lloyd. He's a cool guy. And uh, I'm I'm reading a couple of his books right now. And so that's good. That keeps me keeps me going. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is Ash Wednesday today of the time of our recording, and so I'm all dressed up in my in my preacher outfit of you know black clergy shirt and collar, and I also have a green cardigan on, so I look I look very um, uh, old. Uh, you're saying, like very Mr. Rogers. <laughs> very Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers, old and all that good stuff. Um, and then I've got a uh, an Ash Wednesday, a combined Ash Wednesday service with the other United Methodist churches in the area. Um, I, I am not looking forward to that. That's not something I, I terribly enjoy. Why Mostly not? because, oh, well, I, I don't get along super well with the other United Methodist pastors in my we cluster. We talk about that, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just, it, it's, I, I have some thoughts about some of the combined stuff. I think that the connectionalism of United Methodism, listeners, all what that means uh, is United. One of our values as United Methodists is that we uh, are believe that we are connected to uh, to each other in, in, in important ways, and so that means that part how we honor that value is by uh, working to have strong working relationships with other United Methodist clergy people. And other congregations, and so we we're, we're encouraged to do things like that. I mean, among and, uh, other things, the whole conference system is connectional. A- absolutely, absolutely, and so it's it's built into our polity as well, and all that's very uh, lovely. I I don't think it's terribly helpful in my context. Um, uh, and the only reason I say that is because the town I I'm in is um uh something of uh i'm I'm gonna say closed off but that's not really what i mean it has its own high school and elementary school and you know its own kind of small grocery store like like it in order to get a lot of different things you have to leave the town but by and large if if you you could subsist by just staying here if you really wanted to it's self-sufficient it's self-sufficient and the Methodist church that I that I serve is the only Methodist church in this town. And so uh, in order to so so the, the next town over is only nine minutes away and I'm there quite a lot to do a number of things. But there's not a ton. Of, it doesn't to me, there's not a lot of wisdom in um, doing a lot with the other Methodist churches in the town over. There's five Methodist churches in the town over. Sorry, that checks out, but it's funny to me. <laughs> it's silly, isn't it silly? <laughs> it's ridiculous. And um, listeners, there's a reason for that. The Methodist Church has split. The Methodist movement has split in a lot of different ways over the history of the Methodist movement in the United States, and uh, we have split and come back together and absorbed other groups and and all sorts of things. So every time there's a split, they make their own congregation. Uh, and then every time we realize that we have to come back together for unity or financial purposes, uh, we just keep those church buildings, though. Yeah, yeah, it's not a smart move. Um, <laughs> it's on, on the whole, but I know why we do it. But that's why that's why, listeners, you might not be a United Methodist, but you might live in a town somewhere in this country that has four United Methodist churches in it. And you go, why is that the case? Well, that's why that's the case. 
I used to drive past two United Methodist churches on my way to morning worship at the United Methodist church that I grew up at. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Me too. Totally. Me too. That that's a that's a common North American Methodism thing. Yeah. <laughs> like it just happens a lot. It's unsustainable. We shouldn't do that. But but yet here we are. Um, but anyway, to to kind of put a pin in my point, like. I don't see a lot of wisdom and, and doing a lot with those other Methodist churches, um, in my context. And this is why, um, what ends up happening is the things we do together are things like, uh, holy days and Ash Wednesday and, and, and other things. And all what that means is that, um, the kind of, uh, community that our church serves and is in mission with uh uh we leave <laughs> mm. be in community with with folks that we are not uh necessarily serving directly mm. uh, and so so i sort of lose ash wednesday oh ac- actually that's all what that means that, uh, i i lose an oppor- my church and i lose an opportunity to minister to the folks of, of the town we live in on Ash Wednesday and other holy days because instead we, we are gathered with, and this isn't a bad thing. It's not bad to be gathered with other United Methodists. I just find it indulgent. Um, mm. it's, uh, and that's really the problem. I think that's the main problem with, with kind of how, how we're doing it right now. It's totally possible. And, and I'm sure it happens that the churches, the Methodist churches in the town nine minutes away, uh, advertise and use the Ash Wednesday service as an opportunity to reach unchurched uh, people in the town that they are in. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's true. And I think that's awesome. That should happen. That's a win. Um, but but uh, that doesn't – I'm going to just say it. That doesn't help us. Right. You know, that's all what that means is that we have to travel and there is no Methodist Ash Wednesday presence in our town. That's what that means. Unless I'm doing it, because that's what I do it during Ash Wednesday is I walk around the town and I give ashes to random people and businesses that I see. I saw that you posted about that on Facebook today and I, I wondered about that, if that was a new yeah. thing or if there was a I like that idea a lot, though. Yeah, I, I I don't mind doing it. I enjoy it. But but I do it exclusively because if I didn't do it, there would be zero Ash Wednesday presence from Methodism in in the town. Hmm. So I, I and it's fine. Like, it's not like it's a great sacrifice on my part. Right. But uh, but that's what I that's what I do. Hmm. Yeah, I, this is my first Ash Wednesday here, um, and I have gotten the impression that they've always done Ash Wednesday on their own, which I'm not upset about. Um, the like, I there are two Baptist churches nearby, and there's a Church of God church next door, and none of them are particularly liturgical, so I don't think they even have an Ash Wednesday service. Uh, though the Church of God church did have a prayer vigil uh, yesterday for mardi gras i'm not really sure right yeah i'm not really sure what the motivation was for that but they did it um and it was probably pretty well attended because everything they do is um which (laughs) (laughs) i don't i know that sounded so bitter and angry the like the people at my church really um get kind of down in the mouth whenever we uh, start talking about the church next door because they have children's ministries and they have a children's music ministry and they have young people and and their parking lot is full on Sunday and they're buying up land to make a new parking lot so they can fit all the people that are coming to their church. And the people at my church are like, well, I just don't understand why that's not us. Like, why, what is the difference? And I have a lot of thoughts about what the difference is. Uh, but I like the pastor at the church next door. I haven't heard him preach, but like person to person, I like him. Um, I picked up one of their one of their families dropped a stuffed animal in the parking lot on Sunday, and I need to text a picture to see if he can figure out whose it is. It's this little bunny. It's adorable. 
Oh, um, well, that's, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we're just kind of on our own for Ash Wednesday. And I have felt very on my own <laughs> for this because I mm. they didn't save the palms from last year to burn. Um, or if they, or if the previous pastor did save them, they got thrown out in a clean out of like, why would we need to keep these dead leaves? Right. <laughs> <So>, you <laughs> fools. Right. And so I've been trying to figure out, I don't know how to make ashes. I mean, like I know how to burn stuff, but I've been like looking up YouTube videos and asking people <laughs> to be like, is there something special about the way that we make these ashes? And it turns out that it's, um, just like you just need to char them a little extra better so i like put the ashes that i have in a in a frying pan this morning and fried them um and then <laughs> i have been like chopping at them to make them fine enough and then i'll mix them in a little bit of olive oil later so that they'll stick on people's heads and, right and i hope that's good enough they're um I didn't have any palms to burn, but I did burn a lot of leaves this fall in my outdoor chimney. So I use those. Uh, it's uh, like that's kind of a holy space for me. And I've had a couple of like in the few times that I felt the presence of God in the past couple of years of my life. Like two of them have been as I've been like sitting and watching the fire and thinking about things outside. So to me, these are holy ashes. They're as holy as any of the palms we use. And I feel like that'll be fine. But I have kind of just felt like a, a drift in this. I like, and I don't know why there isn't a just like a practical liturgy worship class at Wesley. Because I remember I've practiced baptism. I've practiced communion. We talked about funerals and weddings and how to plan them and all this kind of stuff. But there wasn't a like, here are all the places that you typically order candles from. And here's what you do if you get a grape juice stain on the communion linens. And this is how you make ashes if you don't buy them. <laughs> like, There's just all these little things that if you had an altar guild at your church, they probably have already taken care of. And maybe that's why they don't teach it at seminary. But I'll have an altar guild like the previous <laughs> pastor did a bunch of stuff because uh, right. he had, had been retired and knew how to do it all. And so when I was like, do we know where the palm branches are for Ash Wednesday? Everybody was like, uh, and I was like, do we know where we order palm branches from? And everybody was like, uh, and I'm like, okay, well, I, you know, if there are other pastors around that probably order them. I will check and see. So I would love like the United Methodist church that's in the town that I live in, not the town that I serve in is a bigger United Methodist church that has no reason to be connectional with other United Methodist churches because they are self-sustaining. If anything, it would be the other smaller churches coming to them for services. And right. that doesn't do a whole lot for the ego of the smaller churches. Uh, but I would love to just be like pastor at this other church, invite me over, explain, like, just do this for me because I don't want right. to do it. <laughs> I, I totally understand. As I was leaving the coffee shop this morning, I, uh, I asked if, uh, if anybody wanted ashes and, and nobody did at the coffee shop, but I have a good relationship with them. And, and, and they were like, what, what are you doing for Ash Wednesday? And I told them and, and they were like, Oh, that sounds fun. And I was like, no, I, I, I think I'd rather hang myself. Than <laughs> Then go. Sorry, everybody. That was rude. I think I'd rather not do this <laughs> than go. Do, than than go and do uh, uh, an Ash Wednesday service, which is wrong, you know. Yeah. Or, yeah, it's wrong. It is wrong because it's part of the job, and Ash Wednesday is rather beautiful. But I also uh, am with you, Joe. Like I'm kind of like, can somebody just do this, please? <laughs> you know, yeah. like I. I don't really want to do this. And I, yeah, I I actually love an Ash Wednesday service. I mean, I love um, I love contemplating my mortality, and I like <laughs> like and I say that jokingly because I'm very sincere about it, and so I have to joke about it. And otherwise, it sounds funny. It does. Like <laughs> I love thinking about my death. Yeah. I mean, I mean. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I. I like thinking about God's gracious gift of life, which is actually a line in my sermon <laughs> for tonight. But like, I I love that Lent is a time of year where we 
as Christians are forced to be honest with ourselves about uh, where we actually stand, that we cannot think too highly of ourselves. Um, and I think that just goes into like my internalized self-loathing and I just feel very at home in Lent. But I think there's a healthy way to do it. I'm striving to find a healthy way to do it. And I really need to because my week was uh, shit. It was just not good. You want to talk about it? Yeah, I don't want to talk a ton about it because it's not... <laughs> I I was talking to Ian about how I needed you and I to have a podcast episode about something or other so I could process it. And Ian was like, well, it's it's your therapy hour. So <laughs> and I was like, it's not true. <laughs> I pay a therapist. Um, but I something kind of triggered in my brain and I have I could not tell you what it was until um, Ian came down with this really terrible cold. And he's like, but you know, the last time that I had these exact same symptoms was a year ago at the 2019 general conference. And I was like, oh, that's what it is. Like my body is remembering all of the stress this time a year ago. And, um, and just how awful I felt about myself then. I mean, I, I had panic attacks that week. It was, and I didn't have any medication. So I was in like the darkest of the dark and it was not a great time for anybody. There was, uh, there was a lot of schoolwork that did not get turned in before and after general conference 2019. Uh, so I think my body panicked about that. Um, and, and it just kind of set off this spiral of events that involved a lot of, um, not doing my job and, uh, drinking and watching TV. And then I went, um, I went to my parents' house for my little brother's birthday. I, like, stopped at their house because his house is near their house because I had something to pick up from their house. Mm-hmm. And my dad and I were talking. He w- he wanted to talk some more about Paul, the apostle, because uh, he's going through a study on the letters of Paul. And he was realizing that Paul evolves in his thought about the um, immediacy of the second coming of Christ. And sure. my dad was like, well, what do we do with this? And I'm like, what do you do you need to do anything with it and he was like well if if somebody takes the bible literally then they don't know what to do with paul because paul changes his mind and i'm i'm like i mean yes if you're just reading each book of the bible expecting it to be consistent with every other one you're not gonna get that right the bible contradicts Mm -hmm. itself all the time and like the even the gospels can't agree on like the day that Jesus was crucified, right? The synoptics are all yeah. fine, but John's doing something different as John does. And so my dad was like, "Well, then how do you have a conversation with these people?" Uh, which I found fascinating. And we ended up talking about that, and I ended up talking about um, finding like common ground and things that you can agree on now and outcomes that you can agree on if there are outcomes that you want to agree on. Cause I phone baked for Elizabeth Warren on Saturday, which was actually mm-hmm. a really great thing. Um, great. But I ended up uh, calling a Trump supporter. Well, it was somebody who had donated to the campaign and that's how we had this person's information. Uh, but this person was like, listen, the Democrats don't have their life together. So I'm going to vote for Trump because the economy is going fine, which is a normal talking point. You hear it a lot. Um, and so I like ended up talking back and forth with him about a lot of Warren's policies and how the world is, is going for different people and all this kind of stuff. And the guy was like, well, you know, I don't, I don't like how he presents himself as president, but I can't complain about the economy. So I'm going to vote for him again. And I was like, great. I also don't like how he presents himself office president however i'm not seeing that great economy that you are apparently seeing uh so but we both want the economy to be good we both want people to be taken care of we both want a leader who can get this have have the country be in a place of where we don't feel like we are trapped in by scarcity um Mm -hmm. it ended up being a good conversation. Uh, and he said that he would, he's registered as an independent. And I'm like, I am too. And he's like, well, I'm not going to vote until the general election, but I'll, I'll keep an eye out on these plans. And I'm like, well, thank you. So that was an interesting time. But so I'm talking to my dad about like, you kind of have to do that when you're, when you disagree with people about the Bible, you have to be like, 
find the outcome that you both want. You both want to understand God better. And and it's just a matter of which method is going to help you understand God best. And you can have a conversation about that. You're not, probably not going to agree about it, but that's an easier framework to work from. Um, and I talked a little bit about like the emotional piece of reading scripture for me is like, that's a lens that I have on that I often have to take off. Like, how does this passage make me feel? And if it makes me feel bad, and then I don't want to pay attention to that passage. But that's not how you should read scripture. And so I'm trying to like work through the emotional part of it. And so me and my dad were talking about the emotional aspect of religion. And he was like, how much of it for you is emotional? And how much of it is like, I something that you think through like he really meant theological and I was like well you know like I go back and forth like I will have an emotional reaction that like triggers a theological thought that I need then need to think through and then maybe I need to look again at that emotional reaction or not and I used the purity movement as an example for that because there are a lot of passages in scripture that because the purity movement manipulated them for me I have like initially very strong negative reactions against them. Uh, mm -hmm. But I know that that's, I know why that happens. And so what I have to do is reshape that theology so that then I can come back to scripture and see if there is anything there for me or not. Uh, and my dad said, well, it sounds like you really did yourself a disservice by believing that. And I, <laughs> man, right. And I, yeah. Don't like I can't for the life of me remember what I said in response to it. Like the conversation went on. But for me, like everything stopped for that. Like, you know, you really screwed up by believing that purity stuff. Like is Ooh. I did this. I did this. I did th this. Um and I yeah, and it just sent me back into this place of, you know, you should be spiritually strong enough at all times to know what theology is true and what theology is damaging and you should never be caught by false teachers because you should have such deep knowledge of Christ from the beginning of your Christian journey that you are never like kicked off guard by this. And I was clearly led astray by this, which means that I am a fallen human and there is no hope for my redemption because once you've been taken aside by false teachers, there's no coming back to the true communion with Christ. And I'm like, like, I don't know why that's where my brain went, but my brain went to this very hopeless place of like, well, I got tricked by it once and there's no recovering from this. So uh, I don't, don't, uh, nothing really matters anymore. And so I did not, uh, write my sermon that night. I got to church late the next morning and the bulletins got printed and it was the transfiguration. And I'd kind of thought about what I wanted to say, but I just sure. stood up in the pulpit and was like, I don't have a sermon for you. Like, but I can, let's talk about the transfiguration. And I like said a bunch of stuff that I thought was true. And then I like opened it up for questions and we ended up having a really good science and religion conversation actually. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. And it, it just ended up fine, which is not great because you know, when I don't prepare for my job, I should not be positively rewarded. <laughs> I, I know <laughs> I've been there too. <laughs> yeah. But also like the spirit does as the spirit does. I can't help it. Um, but so I was still in this like really awful place all through Sunday I, like eventually got my shit together, went to therapy on Monday uh, and like made a bunch of contingency plans to kind of get me out of the hole that I was in. And like things have been a little bit better since that. But like I just it's like every time this happens, I'm already in an emotionally, mentally, like physically distressed state because of X, Y, Z thing. And then the people who are supposed to provide me like comfort and wisdom and knowledge say something that just like knocks me down on the floor and like stomps on me. <laughs> like yeah. I never know what to do with it. And I think um, I think a big part of it for me is that I feel like. I should be stronger than what I am. Like, I feel like I should have more knowledge. I feel like I should have more wisdom. I feel like I should be more in tune with the spirit so that, so that nothing bad ever happens to me. And if something unpleasant does happen, then it must be my fault because I didn't try hard enough. And I think that that's something that is like out there in people's perspective of pastors is that, um, 
like they have it all together and they know all the spiritual things and the stuff that like might knock us down shouldn't knock them down because they're better than we are at a Mm. congregant on Sunday morning. We ended up getting having a very straightforward conversation about LGBTQ inclusion in the church. And he is against including gay men in the church, Uh, not including them in the church. They can attend the church, uh, but having them be in the pulpit. And he said they can't be there and tell me how to live my life when I know the way that they're living their life because Mm. he believes homosexuality is a sin. And so because they're sinning, they have no moral authority. They have no ability to teach him. Uh, because he's not cynic in that particular way, I guess. And I, that also did not help anything with my brain because uh, like because he meant it for the whole LGBTQ community, like all of the that I a non heterosexual identity is a non cis gender heterosexual identity is a sin. And if you are doing this sin, you can't you, you can't be a preacher. And I like. And and on a, a lot of ways, I feel that as a pastor, like if I don't have my shit together, what right do I have to stand in the pulpit? And I feel like I should be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if Christ doesn't strengthen me enough to do all things, then it's not Christ's fault. It's mine. And what do I do about that? So that's going to that maybe that's a good thing for us to talk about is is that that piece of um we should be perfect as our father in heaven is perfect. And how do we do that when that's not, that's not the reality of human existence for anybody, but that expectation is sneakily there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I, I, thanks for sharing all of that, Joe, that, you know, I'm always really to affirm you for a second. I'm always really impressed and humbled whenever you, um, you know, kind of open this part of your life up for me and for the listeners of the podcast and and everything like that. So I'm really sorry that uh, your your dad said what he said. That's pretty terrible. (laughs) Meaning no offense to your family. You know, I, I don't know your dad, but, but it's uh, not a bad this this is the thing about both of my parents. They're not bad people if you're listening. Hi, I love you. But they they I have such a different understanding of the world than they do and they don't have the vocabulary that I do and they don't have the perspective that I do. And so it makes these conversations really hard, especially when like I am longing for something to help me make sense of what's happening to me and my parents are just not equipped to do that. Sure. So it's frustrating, but yeah, thank that. you for affirming my turning this into a therapy session again. <laughs> no, whatever. Hey, man, whatever. What the hell is a pastor when you get right down to it? No, I so uh, first things first, just because it en- entered into my mind, our next mini episode should be on the authority of the Bible and how we work with that. Oh, yeah, we should lay that out for our listeners. That's good. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, uh, but set, so let's get off of that. Um, I also experience something of that, of what you've described, where uh, congregants or um, other folks kind of expecting, um, you know, of uh, uh, something at least close to perfection from their pastors. My context is a little, a little different for for two reasons. One, um, we go through pastors relatively quickly here, mm. um, relatively quickly, um, at least compared to your context. And uh, so we've had a collection of pastors, and 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 I have folks in my congregation who remember. Uh, 10 pastors before me. <laughs> wow. And, and so there's, uh, or so, and so there's, uh, something of a, of a variety. And, and these, these are congregants who, who remember that the 10 pastors before me were not perfect. Mm-hmm. And, and that, and so I, I've got a little bit of leeway, um, on that end. I also kind of, when I began, I kind of set, uh, I, I guess boundaries. I, I kind of, I kind of made a couple of things clear where I was like, Hey, um, 
I uh, will occasionally swear like a sailor. I'm going to try not to do it in church, but uh, if if I let it slip in church, please don't yell at me. <laughs> yes, I'm going to do theater. I've done theater my whole life. There's a community theater in, in, in the town over. I'm going to do it. And so feel free to come and see me, but it's theater. It's not real life. And so I'm not going to change the script for your sensibilities. You know, mm-hmm. that's just mm-hmm. what I'm going to and and um by and, and some other things. And by and large, um the folks that are still at my church <laughs> uh and I don't say that in a kind of a silly way, like we've we've had a lot of growth at my church over the last two and a half years. But uh for all of that growth, there's also been a handful of folks who have left because they don't like me or they don't like the direction the church is going. But the folks that are here are fine with that. And and understand that I am not perfect and, and I make mistakes and that I'm a sinner and, and all that stuff. But I had to arrive at that. Mm. Uh, you know, I had to kind of cultivate that and, and kind of kind of walk that line of, you know, this is I am as God made me. This is who I am. These are the things that I struggle with that I think are, that's the other thing I do. I, I'm very honest in sermons and in, and in one on ones. Uh, about some of my own struggles. I talk a lot about money. Like money is a big thing that I struggle with, like my relationship to money and stuff like that and, and other things. But, um, but I have experienced, uh, particularly from folks who know me as a pastor, but, uh, who, but I'm not their pastor. Mm. Um, I have in the community and in other parts of, of, in other communities that I'm a part of, uh, there's a significant amount of pushback from some of those folks. Um, fun story. I, I, uh, there's an open mic night thing that happens at the theater in the town over and I do stand up comedy. I've heard you talk about this. Yeah. Which is a ton of fun. I, 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 any, anybody who's listening, particularly any pastor who's listening, do that. It doesn't matter if you're not funny. Stand-up comedy will help you figure out how to do sermons. It really will. Like, like it's it's like the same. It's in like the same family, <laughs> right? <laughs> of, of of talking in public. And so I I did that a couple of months ago. I did stand-up comedy, and and I and I like to gently make fun of religion and and the church. I never use any names and, and I make it kind of a funny joke. Like I call all the ladies of my church Ethel because I don't have any Ethels in my church. And so I, it, it kind of, it's fun. And, uh, after I did stand up comedy, my bit a couple of months ago, I started getting harassed from somebody who was there, uh, from a, a local evangelical fundamentalist who was at the stand up comedy thing. Uh, this guy keeps, and uh, he still does it. Uh, he sends me Facebook messages and, and letters telling me that I'm a false teacher and, and all this good stuff. Mm. Uh, fun times. Well, like, like, like it's stuff like that that I experience, you know, but, but at the same time, me being myself and me kind of putting, you know, my faults out there and, and not really living into that kind of, image of um the kind of pious pastor is also what has consistently allowed me to connect with unchurched people people who don't know who jesus is people who do know who jesus is but who haven't been connected to a christian community in a very long time and and that's what has allowed me to like be present with them and and share that with them so i don't know I don't know. Yeah, I so I think that's great. Uh, and I think those are all good things. And I have also endeavored to be honest with my people about uh, everything except for my sexuality. Um, because I like I think that the more that I talk about struggling with depression and changing medications and things like that, the more that that enables them to talk about it, too, and tells them that that's OK. Um, I think that the the real struggle that I have is that there is not a community here for me to just be out in and to be able to like be my authentic self in um, that connects to my church in any way, shape or form, because my church is 
down the road from a post office and that's about it. So we need a, we need a community space here. We need to create that in some way, shape or form. Um, but it's, you know, it is almost not the, um, the objections or the, or the expectations of others maybe that gets me. It is my internal expectation that, mm. um, that I need to be a super Christian, right? That I need to be above reproach that, um, if I'm, because if I'm going to make a strong moral stance about anything, then I need to be in a place where people can't come at me and attack me because of my right. lack of morals in other places. Um, and, and I really, I really struggle with that because, you know, like I drink and I cuss and I am, in a relationship and have, you know, slept over at the house of the person that I am not married to and all these kind of things. Like, uh, and I speed on the highway sometimes and I, I don't save away every extra penny of my money and I don't spend enough time with the poor and all this kind of stuff. Like I just, I know that there are, I have an ideal Christian. I have a vision of an ideal Christian in my head and I am, painfully aware of all the ways that I fall short and I feel that because I fall short in such profound ways that I have no standing to mm. be doing this job at all and I don't think that all the time and I think that I've heard you know the um like the healthier ways to think about that but I have really internalized this sense of like Jesus should be with me in this and I should be doing this better and it's it's all my fault that that this church hasn't grown by leaps and bounds in my first six months. You know, like mm. I just, I have, I feel like I am the one who is stopping God from doing the work that God wants to do in this community. And, and I should feel bad about that. You know, like, because I feel like I should be invincible. And it turns out that I am very invincible, you know, like I am just very right. vulnerable to like the stresses of this job and the political climate and, and to like what's already happening in my own mental health. Like I just I all of this is is weighing me down and I feel like. I should be able to pray the depression away. And I know that's not true. And I know that's not a way to think about it, but it's, it's still there. I still have this conception of I, I should be better than what I am. And it's my fault that I'm not. Hmm. Hmm. And like, what do you do with that? Yeah. I mean, how do you convince yourself otherwise? Right. <laughs> right. That's true. Yeah. yeah. That, that's tough. I, I understand. I understand. Um, I, it's funny. A lot of my my own struggle with self-loathing, Joe, which I have plenty of, does not often manifest in in kind of this sense of, wow, I, I really need to be the best or I really need to get my shit together and be, um, you know, and have kind of the higher the, the moral high ground and 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 stuff like that. That doesn't really manifest personally that way for me, um, and so I I hear what you're saying, and and you know that's hard, that's tough. I don't know how to convince you otherwise, you know, because mm -hmm. you know, like it sounds like you intellectually know that well, this is all very silly, but uh, but but you know, emotionally, um, that's what you believe. And this is, I mean, this is a problem that my people struggle with too, I think, um, is that, um, that, that struggle between emotional belief and intellectual belief, um, on different issues. I mean, I think that that's at the core of uh, a lot of the conversation about LGBTQ issues on the local church level is that, um, on the local church level, you can present somebody with any number of arguments for or against, and those arguments don't really matter. What matters is what they emotionally believe about it and what their experiences have been and how their experiences have, have changed them and all this kind of stuff. And so being able to know that emotions are important, but also know that our emotions are not completely definitive 
Um, and to know that theological arguments are important, but also that like, um, you're never going to make a theological argument that is going to completely convince someone heart and soul. I mean, like, I don't know. John Wesley felt his heart strangely warmed hearing like Luther talking about the introduction to the Romans or or whatever. It's uh, that's not a very enlightening text from like going back to look at it. But like I like I think that like I think that theology can inspire people. But I also think that there's an emotional aspect to it. And so how do we how do we balance that and how do we. Other than go, other than like uh, employing a full time therapist for each congregation, <laughs> uh, <laughs> multiple ones. How do we get people to uh, balance that out, the the emotional and the intellectual? Because mm. mm. that's not our but, job, right? We're not therapists. You're, you're right. Um, well, if you'd ask a, a, an affect theorist. Uh, they would tell you that there's actually no such thing as the intellectual (laughs) (laughs) that it's, that it's all affect. It's all emotion all the way down. Um, uh, which, you know, um, I don't know if that's true. They're affect theorists, right? That you're creating a theory about it. (laughs) I guess you're right. You're right. There is no emotion. (laughs) It's it's the opposite. It's all intellect all the way down. I know. Ugh. You know, do you, are you a Doctor Who fan? I I haven't watched in a couple of seasons, but I used to be a big Doctor Who fan. There, I am not, so I'll start with that. But my wife is. And uh, there's a, uh, I guess, a villain uh, group in Doctor Who who are like robots that try to, like, improve humanity. Oh, the Cybermen, yeah. Cybermen. Um, my, my wife, Beth, uh, believes... Uh, that the Cybermen are right. <laughs> and, and I often make fun of her for it. I'm like, you know, you're the only human I've ever met who like, who goes, yeah, that makes sense. We should improve people by getting rid of emotion. And I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> like, it's strange. No, I, I, Joe, I, I hear that. Maybe, maybe what you're saying, may, or maybe what I'm hearing you say is, um, perhaps there needs to be more work uh, in pa- more robust work in pastoral care classes, maybe uh, for for pastors, right? May- maybe maybe there needs to be a greater emphasis, since since by and large, um, what you're describing is part of our job, mm-hmm. right? Like, yes, it would be really great to have a full time therapist employed at the church, right? right? That'd be great, but you've just described. Us, you know, we are the full-time therapists employed at the church, right. um, uh, which is wrong. Like it shouldn't be that way, you know. And and ultimately, we're trained to, you know, refer folks. Yeah, that's what I was. If you did not say that really soon, I was going to just start shouting, refer, refer, refer. <laughs> like absolutely, absolutely. But uh, but here's the reality of it. The reality of it is, um, you know, not everybody is in a community that. Um, can support that. Yeah. I am not, you know, I am not presently in a community that can support that. I suppose I can drive an hour and a half to somebody who, to a, to a therapist that has openings that is in my insurance group that, uh, and, and stuff. But all of that means is that, you know, I, I don't do my job for a long time and I don't watch my daughter for a long time. And I, <laughs> you know, so like it's all, I, I, it's not that simple. But but maybe that's a maybe that's a blind spot in our in our education. I mean, we're always going to have blind spots in our education, right? We my my first year, I realized the same thing you did. I don't know how to make ashes. <laughs> like, like, like I realized <laughs> that was that's exactly how my first Ash Wednesday went. Um, uh, and so I'm I'm with you. That's a blind spot. But maybe another blind spot is, you know, we only had to take one. We only had to take one pastoral care and counseling class. Yeah. You know, I took two, but that was an elective, you know, by sort of by accident, <laughs> you know. And um and and maybe the other blind spot uh, in our education as pastors is that we are not challenged enough 
to um be to to tra- help what do I want to say we are not challenged enough to be transformed in our thinking on and our thinking and praxis on um our own kind of health and our own and how others should be healthy i think about um some of our colleagues at seminary who um and I'm not here to mock second career pastors or, or licensed local pastors or that's not my, that's not my intention. But I think about, um, the way in which some folks come into seminary who might be older or, or doesn't have to be older, who are, who are just not interested in being, uh, challenged or transformed, but are, who are here because they already believe they can be pastors. Mm. And this is just sort of the, the hoop. Right. Like, like there's, there's no reason that there's nothing for me to learn. I've already read the good book. You know, <laughs> there's nothing for me to learn. I've, I already uh, know how to hold a person's hand. There's nothing for me to learn. I've been going to church my whole life. And, and, uh, I think about some of those folks who are now my colleagues who, um, kind of unquestion, unquestioningly, sort of preach on the importance of um, working really, really hard until you mm. die. Yeah, yeah. Or, or kind of unquestioningly support things like, um, um, well, of course you should stay with your husband. The Bible makes that very clear. Right. You know, r- stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that that's still built into us. To a degree, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm immune or that you're immune to that, but maybe, maybe there needs to be more. Maybe there needs to be even more chipping away, you know, at us to try and, um, no, no, be better. But maybe that's exactly what you're saying. Maybe, maybe this is, maybe what I'm saying is just an extension of that trap that you're experiencing, right? That, that we're, we're supposed to be better. We're supposed to be. Um, uh, I'm supposed to have the moral high ground. I'm supposed to have my shit together. Otherwise, how will I, how will I effectively be a pastor? So maybe I'm, maybe I do believe that. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> just a saying in a different way. Well, no, I, I don't think that's what you're saying. Um, and I think maybe it, it does ultimately come down to, um, a theological understanding of the, the Christian life. Do we believe that you are saved and sanctified and go and sin no more? And like that, that the evidence of the profoundness of your conversion is shown in your complete transformation of your life? Or do we believe that there is, that the Christian life is this ongoing relationship between you and God where God is continually reshaping you and helping you as you work through the difficult things that the world has put in your path um, and that it's it's full of this kind of long-lasting abundant grace that helps you to become a better person and that we're all on that path including pastors and so we need um like if a pastor falls, then that's not that does not mean that Jesus doesn't exist. It means that that person has growth to do on their Christian journey. Like I think um, I think sometimes the way we talk about call and the way we talk about, um, you know, like getting through seminary is uh, is a it's a difficult thing. And it almost requires you to um, to have this. Um, self-assurance that God has called you into this and that like the work that God has begun, God will be faithful to complete and that you just have to keep going or like otherwise God isn't going to be able to do this work. Do do the work in the world that you were called to do, right? That God has God has a plan exclusively for you for ministry, and if you are not faithful to follow in that plan, then that ministry doesn't get done. And I think that maybe the reframing we need to have with that is that you know God can call up a, like descendants for Abraham from these stones, right? It does not have to be us. We get to choose for it to be us, and if and if. And if we are not ready for that, if we have a longer journey toward preparing ourselves to be able to do this full time, then then that's okay. Like that's 
that is part of God working something and God does not give up on these things, but it also like fields lay fallow. I just think mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of analogies and metaphors for um for this kind of gradual growing in Christ and this um this like running staying on the course um but but you know like I I know somebody who has literally run from North Carolina to Oklahoma and you don't do that in a day right that's a sure. that is a journey that you sleep through I there was a um there was an 80 mile race that he was doing another time where it was like literally uh, the tortoise and the hare. He was running and then he like went and took a nap around like mile 42 or something. Uh, Cause you can do that on these long races and then heard somebody who was like going up with his walking stick as he was jogging and he was the last one in the group. And so my friend woke up and, and started to try to run and catch back up and like, we because none of us do those long physical journeys anymore we don't understand that there are necessary periods of rest that don't happen just because you pulled a muscle or broke a bone but just because you need to rest right um and i think that yeah i think that while we can do all things through christ who strengthens us that does not mean that we uh are doing all things this moment i like that that you know the kingdom is in the process of coming it is not fully here yet and that's just the way the world is things don't happen immediately some things happen immediately and and are these like stories of hope that can can help encourage us but it's okay if you are not perfect right now because perfection is the work of a lifetime absolutely that's right now if only i would believe that (laughs) Hey, man, I feel that, though. I do. I. Yes, this is. So what you're describing is is part of the reason why affect theorists say what they say. Right. Oh. Boy, if only I were to believe that. Yeah. You know, exactly. Belief is belief is an emotional thing. Hmm. You know, at the end of the day, it's it's not it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that it's like um, that it's like a high we chase. You know, it, it doesn't mean that. But but it's it's something that's got to hit you in the gut, right? It can't it can't just necessarily be a thing that you kind of like subscribe to like intellectually. I don't believe that two plus two equals four. You know, it just does, right? Like, right. And, but but that's but we didn't just describe belief, you know. <laughs> right, we, right, right, right. Um, and so. Yeah, I think it's I think it's like that, right? Like I I think what you're there there is no belief that isn't emotional. Um, yeah. I be, so like if I were to connect it theologically and be a nerd for a second, like <laughs> I I think that logically, of course, there's a God. I I do like I think I I'm convinced by the logical proofs of God's existence. I'm convinced I am. I'm convinced by that. But that's not really a belief. That's that's a like a logical puzzle, right? Like yeah. that's a that that's something that's just sort of that I affirm to be true because it's I think it's true. Like I I think it's true in the same way that gravity is true or that two plus two equals four is true. But but like. I believe um, in the crucified carpenter. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Like, like that's different. That's a that's an emotional kind of a qualitative response, right? Like, that's I don't have to I don't have to both affirm that there must be a source of being, and um, that that uh, and that that source of being takes the form of a suffering love. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't have to affirm both of those things logically. I only have to affirm one of those things logically or, or as an intellectual kind of formula. Um, but like that, the only way to convince me that, um, that, that the crucified carpenter saves or is real or whatever is through, uh, a, a, a slightly more complex, you know, kind of affect, you know, it's, I, I believe it because of the impact it has, you know, on me. 
right? And yeah. and I think that's the same with what, what you're describing. Like, you already know, and so do I, that, well, of course we're not, like, of course we're not supposed to be perfect. You know, of course, <laughs> of course, at least not right now, you know, of course we're not supposed to be super people, you know, we know that. But, um, uh, I believe or, or you might believe, or I might believe, or somebody might believe in emotionally in super people. Hmm. You know, hmm. uh, if I may really fast, that's why, um, I don't always like, uh, um, like, <laughs> I don't know. This is going to sound, I'm going to sound like a fucking a racist for a second. That's why I don't always like Martin Luther King Jr. Day. You know, I, that, oh. that it, it's too easy to, uh, I love MLK. Don't get me wrong. I, I really do. Like, I think MLK is awesome, but like, and I'm certainly a hundred percent in favor of civil rights. Let's make that very clear. <laughs> I want to make that very clear, but like when, when we deify him, just like when we deify Dorothy day or, or anybody like suddenly, um, it reinforces our belief in super people. Yeah. Right. Our belief now, our, our, our effective belief, like at the end of the day, we believe <laughs> in super people, even if logically we know MLK wasn't perfect or Dorothy Day wasn't perfect or right. Oscar Romero wasn't perfect. Yet we still believe in them. Yeah. And I just to maybe assuage your nervousness about being racist. I think that most people acknowledge that the celebration of MLK Day is a sanitization of his legacy. And um, while it might be used to help encourage future movements for civil rights and things like that, it is not um, it is not necessarily something that aids us in it doesn't it does not in and of itself uh it be a thing that aids us in in the struggle for racial justice in this country right in 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 many ways it just helps white people feel better about themselves um and and in that way we need to think about that and how we handle that but yeah i i think i think you're right i think the um i think that what we need to shift when it comes to thinking about super people and thinking about being super people is um, maybe we need to think about how God works in and through us differently. Um, because I, because part of my big problem with this is that I am stopping God from doing God's work that like I, as if I could be a stumbling block for the divine, but, but I believe that because I am imperfect, God is, is unable to do the work that God wants to do in the world. Um, and if I were only better then God would make me super, but we find in the Christian witness and in across scripture that um, Moses was deeply not perfect. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. King David is super not perfect. Um, like and that Peter and James and John and all of the disciples and Paul and like every character that we have in these stories, like the everything that we have preserved in our tradition with the exception of like um, some of the ways that we, that the saints get talked about, uh, we recognize that like Peter betrayed Jesus and, and that they did not always get it right. And that they had these, these long lives of working with God and that working with God made them better. Uh, but that like God had to work on them first. And I think that, um, that we would do better to to recognize that we have been told over and over again that like we are we are dust and to dust we will return like that that fundamentally we are not super and that God may work super things through us but that is is not through um our something that about us that makes us special or or different um but just because like we were at the right place for the right time for God to do this work and other humans recognized it as being a powerful work. Like it's not, um, 
It is not that we all need to strive to be super Christians or super people. It is that we need to be doing the constant work of being in relationship with God and that we can be that that when we are in relationship with God, God will do things with us, but that God is going to do those things anyway, regardless of whether it's us or not, who does it. Not if you're processed. Just that I... I'm going to take that out. I was, I'm so happy with how I ended that. I'm not even going to let you have that. I, I understand. I understand. But I, uh, uh, let's, yes, agreed. Perfect ending. Joe, you're super. All right. <laughs> uh, everybody, thank you for listening. This has been What the Hell is a Pastor. We are Ethan and Joe. We will see you next time.